0: Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everybody! This is Ryan, and we're back with another World of Speakers episode. And today, I am super pumped because we've got Josh Linkner. Not only is he a tech entrepreneur slash tech wizard, he's a New York Times best-selling author. He is an innovation guru, and when it comes to speaking, he is in the one that is the number one one percent of those keynote speakers out there. He's probably the one guy that people call when it comes to innovation, and he is harnessing it harnessing it for Companies, and he's giving back to the world of speakers with a crazy day boot camp and support for those that want to emulate his success. Josh Linkner, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. Great to join you.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, to start off, for people who don't know who you are, I want them to know about you in terms of a story that reflects who you are. So instead of just listing off these accolades, and you have a ton. What's a story from your past that you think represents kind of who you are as a person and uh, you know, what you're up to in the world?
1: Yeah, so um, I started my career as a jazz guitarist, and I would often take gigs because I was playing music and it was you're trying to make a living, and also it's you know, improvisational art form. And people would call and say, hey, I'm looking for a guitar player for Saturday night's thing. We're looking for a little heavy metal influence with some country flair and, and a bit of classical overtones. And I'd say awesome. i just been studying it. Sign me up. Let's go. <laughs> and so the reason I bring this up is that for me, what's been the driver of my success, both in jazz, as well as, as a lot of success in business is the ability to improvise, the ability to make the best of situations that aren't scripted and innovate in real time. And while I've had the privilege to do that a bit in the world of jazz, I've had more experience actually in the business world, starting building and selling five tech companies and then launching a venture capital fund and investing in about a hundred other startups.
0: Okay. So this improvisation, and that's pretty hand in hand when it comes to jazz, but would you say that that improvisation is also a driving force in the tech world and in this entrepreneurship? Or do you feel that, you know, there's this, a regimented path that needs to be followed or is it a combination?
1: Yeah. For me, actually playing jazz was the best MBA I could have had. And because those (laughs) skills are totally transferable, whether you're running a startup or you're running a larger organization. The thing is this, In the past, maybe the metaphor of leadership was that of a classical conductor, one person standing in the center of the room, the CEO, commanding the troops to play the notes exactly as they're written on the page. And it was all about alignment and precision and accuracy. But today, that world doesn't exist. Today, we live in a world of dizzying speed, exponential complexity, and ruthless competition. So we have to perform at our best with the notes not on the page. We have to make it up as we go. And so the skills that I learned playing jazz in smoky clubs around the country are perfectly translatable into the uh, the world of entrepreneurship and even larger organizations, because that's what we basically have to do today to win. We have to be jazz musicians. We have to innovate. We have to improvise. We have to adapt. We have to be agile. And that's exactly what I learned from playing jazz.
0: Now, does that same type of improvisation apply for somebody who is looking at creating a career around speaking?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked that. Absolutely. Funny enough, so, so being on a lot of stages playing music was a wonderful also uh, uh, prep for being on a lot of stages as a keynote speaker. And um, there's really some elements of that, I think, especially in the sales process, when you're adapting to a client need, when you're innovating to their uh, desires and their, their objectives, for sure. So if you just run your, your scripted game plan, I don't think that the speaking world today wants that. They want uh, custom crafted solutions that are going to benefit their audience and, uh, and your host. At the same time, in jazz, you also practice like crazy, you know, and so you you practice in the room in the dark so that you shine brightly on stage because you've played something, you know, you've mastered your craft. And I think one complaint that I have about the world of professional speaking is that people say, well, I gave a great toast at my aunt's wedding. I'm a professional speaker. (laughs) And I would encourage people to study the craft in the same way a musician works on scales and chords. And so similarly, I think that you can learn a lot with that, that that you are giving a performance and it's got to be tight and it's got to be not necessarily scripted to the T, but you you have to be good at the craft.
0: So speaking of practice, just in getting a little bit more into your head and and your methodology, because starting and selling as many companies as you have, you know, being a musician who is using your words as basically a vocal jazz, when did you start getting turned on to just jazz? And then the same question when it comes to speaking as its own musical form.
1: (laughs) Cool. Yeah. So I've been playing jazz. uh, It sounds crazy. I'm 48, but I've been playing jazz for 38 years. I started playing jazz when I was 10. So it's been a passion of mine. But by the way, anyone listening doesn't need to like or listen to jazz. You probably have your own passion. Someone might be passionate about theater or sports or or, or painted art, but I'm hoping that we can all be artists in the world of of keynote speaking. Um, In terms of that, the second part of your question, as a CEO, I found myself giving a lot of of talks at large conferences and industry events, and I, I always really enjoyed it. I felt like I was in the groove, not only because it's fun, but also because I was able to make an impact on people's lives. And I realized that I was a pretty good amateur, but I figured I got to at least become a bad professional. So in the same way that I, I went to the Berkeley School of Music and learned to play music, I, I took it seriously. So I studied with a speaking coach for a good 12 months. I still, to this day, years and years later, I watch tape of other speakers. I watch tape of myself. I study storytelling. I look at the technical aspects of the craft, everything from gesture to posture to vocal intonation. And so to me, I tried to apply the same rigor and discipline that I had in playing music and ultimately growing a business to the world of professional speaking. And that has been about 10 years or so in the making. Now, were you a sports guy at all? Did you have any sports in your life? Yeah, you know, I was the guy that the sports guys beat up. I was the (laughs) the music nerd. So uh, no, I'm just, I I really was, nothing wrong with sports, but my passion has always been more on the artsy side.
0: Right, right. Well, I mean, arts, it, it was just thinking the way that you're talking about the practice and the regiment and the dedication to it. It made me think that you were, watching tapes of different teams and analyzing the different plays and coming up with your own playbooks and to that extent. So it's, it's interesting that there's this very tactical piece behind the passion, but what seems ironic is that as you get to a higher and higher level, the technique seems to be more like mystique and you become more natural. It's like the more technical and the more involved you are in studying the nitty gritty, the less it appears that you're being technical and nitty gritty. You're just that authentic, real person who knows what they're talking about. So did you find that there's like an inflection point or is it just this constant moving curve where the more that you're training is to be to a spot where it looks like you are a natural, right? It's kind of that that catch-22.
1: Reminds me of the old quote that the more I practice, the better I get. Yeah, so that's true in sports, in music, in, in really all forms of professional pursuit. And I would just encourage people to look at it exactly like that, whatever. I mean, if you studied medicine, you'd go to medical school for like 18 years, and then you work on your craft, and you're, you're an intern, and then you're a resident, and you, know, you really learn your craft. And so I think as keynote speakers, we too often look past that. We say, oh, I've got all these cool stories, and I can just get up there and, and chat. Nothing wrong with taking the first step, by the way. You don't have to be perfect on day one. Of course not. But I do encourage people to take it seriously as if it was another profession, such as law or, or medicine or something else. And for me, the answer to your question about an reflection point, uh, there have been many, but it really, I'd say, is more continuous. And the, the recommendation that I, I would have to the listeners is try to put the you of six months ago out of business every six months. And so for me, I tend to think about it in six months spurts. So I think I'm a better speaker today than I was six months ago. And I hope that six months from now, I put my today self out of business. And to a degree, it's almost like reinventing yourself each six months. Now, this doesn't have to mean you need all new content every six months, although keeping content fresh is important. But I'm talking about everything from how do you shake the hand of, of the introducing person on stage to, to the way that you engage with your body on the, on, on the stage, to the audience, to the, to the way that you have nuance and, and pauses in the right moments of your storytelling – so for me, I'm always trying to improve. And it's not a destination point. It's an ongoing practice. You know, people practice music or practice medicine. Same thing, we should practice speaking. And no matter how high we get, there's always room for improvement. There's always a way to make a bigger impact to your audience and host.
0: Now, I'll attest to that because, you know, we had met and you had told me about this three-ring circus. I, I was introduced to you, I believe, by Tiffany Bova or something like that. But it, it's a small world and and you put together this one-day workshop which was really eye opening for me. And if anybody is out there and wants to have their eyes open as far as the speaking world, check out the three ring circus.com. And Josh, if you were to give your high level overview of the reason why you started that, I think that's what's most interesting to me because we could talk all day and we will talk about some of the stuff that you're saying, but really why is it that you started a circus so far
1: into your career? Yeah. So to be clear, what what, what this is, we run quarterly one-day boot camps where we train emerging speakers and even seasoned pros on how to take their speaking business to the next level. So this is all the things that you need to do off stage so that you get on stage at higher fees and higher at higher volumes. The reason I did it, uh, Ryan, great question. When I started doing this, I was able to find an amazing speaking coach, and so I, I, there was wonderful support, high quality support on uh, how to hone my craft on stage. But the options of how to learn what to do offstage were terrible. Uh, I thought they, they you know, the zillion dollar speaker and people who spell the word success with dollar signs, <laughs> all this cheesy nonsense that made me want to take a shower. Right. And I felt that our industry desperately needed a high quality, relevant, not what worked in 1982, but relevant today of how to build and scale a speaking business. And I felt that there was such an important need. And people would always ask me like, hey, I want to do this. How do I do it? So my partners and I wanted to give back to our, our community, which we love deeply of speaking and bureaus and such. And so we do this. We created a company, which it's a funny play on words, three ring circus, the number three, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of being a little bit self mocking and, and making, you know, Hey, it's a circus out there, but it's uh, it, we it's anything but, but frivolous. It's quite the opposite. We take a very serious and disciplined and rigorous, and we sort of dissected the world of professional speaking, exactly what it takes. Like, how does a decision get made? Why is one person a $50,000 speaker and the other one's a $5,000 speaker? And we, we take a very systematic approach and help a, a small group of people each quarter build and scale their speaking business.
0: And what I admire is that this is one of, if not the only workshop, you know, boot camp sort of organization that's led by somebody who is on stage as much as you are. I know a lot of people have these workshops and training, like you're saying, spelling success with dollar signs. And these people are making money off of telling people how to get on stage, but they're not necessarily on stage doing it. So to give our listeners just a sort of a high level view, what did you clock in for last year from your speaking engagements? And maybe what are you on track for this year? Just to give people an idea of how active you are on stage.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for asking. And I I don't say this in a boastful way at all. I'm proud of our success, but I'm deeply humble and encourage others as well. But just to answer your question, because I'm very transparent and open, last year I did 163 paid keynotes and my current fee is 35K. So if you do the math, you know, it's well over $4 million of speaking revenue. Again, I don't say that to be boastful at all, but um, what we've done is we've been able to build a systematic approach to building and scaling a speaking business, even in terms of inquiries. Today, we get five to 15 inbound inquiries every single day. And I think it's, you know, I'm pretty good on stage. It's not, it's not like being self-deprecating, but the stuff that we do off stage is much more cool than what we do on stage. And so that's what we like to share is this systematic business approach to scaling and really growing a speaking business.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's dive into this because I've been there in person and I'm doing the, the follow monthly webinars and I've met so many great people, even just from the relationships that I've met there. It is a very small environment and it's high impact. And even your production level, it was like you had lighting and sound and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I really didn't know what I was getting into before I went. And I've just been speaking the praises since. And it's definitely given me a direction and a focus. And one of the things that I appreciate is that You know, I like to believe that successful speakers, they're not doing things that everybody cannot do. Successful speakers are doing things that everyone can do, but not everyone does. And you brought so many simple and powerful, like, you know, smack across the face where it's like, (laughs) wow, you're right. the, The answer is right there and it's simple. And I think that's really powerful. But before we get into the mechanics that you teach about getting onto the stage, I want to spend a little bit of time to have you basically share with us some of the top tactical things that you've learned to beat yourself every six months to be the best that you can be when it comes to delivering the speech. Are there any tips that stand out or things that you just, you watch somebody and you're like, wow, I wish I could sit with you for a few minutes and just give you a couple little speaking tips. What would the ones that percolate to the top be?
1: Well, it's, um, like any performance, it's it's an integrated message between physical performing and content and everything else. One thing that I, I mean, just a couple random tips. Yeah. One thing I think is important is that a good speech is like a good play or a good book. And there's a clear beginning, middle, and an end. And you're taking people on a bit of a journey. And for me, that formula is actually pretty simple. If you have a 60-minute keynote, the first 15 minutes or so is about the problem that you're solving. What's the burning problem that your audience faces for which you're the perfect solution? Then that middle section is your uh, let's say that's maybe thirty five or forty minutes. That's your the core of your talk, which I find works really well if it's centered around a numbered list: the five keys to brilliant customer service, or the three most important things to maintaining a healthy lifestyle. And so, a numbered list is good because it provides markers to the audience; they can sort of follow along. And then the last piece, the last five or eight minutes or so, that's the closing and that's the big finale. It's is handing the baton back to the audience, allowing them to take the next step, and and really giving them a next step that they can take to put these ideas into action. So one thing is structure, so that, which I just described. Another quick tip is that speakers often uh, blow the two biggest opportunities. The biggest opportunity is like a fireworks show. Think about last time you went to a fireworks show. The beginning was brilliant; it captured your attention, and the end of it was the big finale. But as speakers, we do the opposite. We load all the great stuff in the middle and we come up on stage with basically verbal throat clearing, like, oh, hey, great to be here. Nice to see you. What a beautiful venue. And then we end with, all right, that's all I have. Any questions? (laughs) I would say to any speaker, think about it the beginning and ending as your most important spots, the point where you're gonna deliver your best content. Can you imagine showing up to a Rolling Stones concert and and you're there and you're ready to go? And Mick Jagger walks on the stage and says, Hey everybody, it's great to be here in Dallas. Uh, uh, I hope everyone had a nice ride in today. I hope you're enjoying your, your day. How's it going? I mean, of course not. They open up with one of their biggest hits. They grab the attention by their throats. And that's what we need to do as speakers. So think hard about how you start and how you end. Hmm. Uh, the last thing I'll say is choreography. This is a very technical thing, but many speakers, uh, they get amped up. That's great. They got a lot of energy. And they sort of pace around the stage like a caged animal. And as an audience, audiences have something called mirror neurons, which means how the speaker is behaving is how the audience feels. So if you're off balance and you're pacing around the audience, even though it's subconscious, feels like they're off balance as well.
0: So for that off balance, because I think it's a great point. I love the the caged animal. Like I'm just imagining that right now, right? Just pacing back and forth. But how do people get rid of that? Or what do you think the root is? Why is that behavior there? And are there some tactics that you help people to overcome that?
1: Yeah. So the, the reason it's there is because you want to be energetic and you're moving around and all this stuff. And so it's, it's sure it's well-intentioned, but the best speakers harness that and are more deliberate about their where they are at stage at every time. Here's what I do. Here's the hack. I find three points on any stage, the center and as close to the audience as possible. So like I'm trying to get close to them, almost right at the edge of the stage. That's my main spot. And then a spot to one side, maybe a third over, and the side to the other side, about a third over, also very close to the front of the stage. Those are my three spots, and that's it. So I will spend most of my time planted firmly in the center of the stage because the audience feels me, I'm close to them, and my points are much stronger if I'm standing still planted, or even taking a step toward the audience rather than bouncing all over the place. But then throughout the talk, I'll go over to one of my other markers Let's say on the left side, and that way I'm getting close to the folks on that side of the room. Then I'll maybe go back to the center for a bit. Then I'll go over to the right side little spot. And so basically for me, it's deliberately traversing between point A, point B, and point C in a purposeful way as opposed to just you know, letting your feet bounce all over.
0: Now, in that respect, are you looking at your actual script? And when you say choreography, are you blocking it out so you know where you're going to be at what point? Or is it more of a, you have these different spots on stage that, you know, elicit reactions and and sort of communicate physically. And it's just a jazz moment in the moment. Or are you really kind of saying, all right, while I'm talking about this, I'll be here and X, Y, Z. Is it more fluid or is it more sort of scheduled?
1: For me, it's more fluid at this point. But uh, that being said, maybe if someone's practicing, they could schedule it out. You know, story number one, you tell them the center of the stage. Story number two, you walk to the other post. Story number three and four, you come back to the center of the stage. Story number five, you go to the other side. So I, I, there's nothing wrong with that.
0: Okay, I dig it. Now, when it comes to resources for individuals to create their own practicing regimen, because you have so much experience when it comes to practicing, you know, your, your jazz regiment and your speaking regiment. Do you have any tips as far as practicing routines or is there certain ways that you encourage people to practice a speech uh, knowing that that's a big part of
1: it? Um, Yeah, a couple things. One is uh, videotape yourself as much as you can and watch it back even though it's painful because you'll see and feel what's going on. Of course, if you can get in front of a live audience, great. And here's a fun trick. Instead of video, let's say you have your iPhone with you and you're giving a speech, even if it's a small speech, not a big deal, put your iPhone instead of taping you tape the audience. Mm. In other words, stick it like somewhere on stage in a corner and aim it at the audience, film the audience, and you can hear yourself speaking. And then you watch the audience's reaction. There's nothing more real and naked and powerful than watching an audience respond to you. So that joke that you thought was awesome, and you look at that audience and three quarters of them are checking their phone, you know what, it sucks to see it, but you'd rather know it now so you can learn and adapt and grow.
0: I dig it. I like that. And then if you have a video of yourself as well, you've got the, uh, the the double deal there to see both. So I want to spend some time on this, essentially the outline of some of the things that you talk about in the three room circus, because essentially it's an entire curriculum that's based on helping you behind the scenes to get more chances at bat and on stage. So kind of just going through, uh, that as a loose guideline, you know, one of the first things you talk about is the importance of the vision, right? The big why, you call it the North Star and, and all that to that extent. You know, how important is that? And do people really miss that step or do they just not dig deep enough to it? What is the purpose of the vision when it comes to getting on stage? Is it as simple as you need to know where you're gonna to go to get there?
1: You know, um, it's a good question. For me, the clear in any pursuit, by the way, not just speaking, the more clear you get on your destination point, And the more clear you get on your current starting point, the easier you'll be able to route the course. And you'll start to figure out where to course correct along the way if you get a clear sense of the beginning and an end. The best analogy I can use, Ryan, is a uh, a puzzle. Let's say you and I were going to do a thousand-piece puzzle. And we dump all the pieces on the table, and then you throw away the box cover. That will be one tough puzzle to do. (laughs) But that box cover, which is a crystal clear picture of the, the end state, your vision, allows you to figure out, okay, this yellow piece goes here and the red piece goes there. Same exact thing with a speaking career, or really again, any pursuit in life. The more clear you are on your box cover, the more you're gonna be able to figure out where to put the different pieces.
0: Gotcha. And a lot of that has to do with picking a lane and basically having that unique positioning. And one of the things I appreciate about what you've done for me is really push back to that single, the single lane, right? Um, How do you convince people to really, really hone in on that? Because again, you you want to maybe speak on multiple topics, but you keep reining people into that one thing. And it, for it to be something that is unique, because in the industry, is everybody sort of just seemed the same? And is that why you need to stand out? Because how many people can talk about leadership? How many people can talk about customer service? But it seems like you go deeper than that. And you just like keep asking wise to figure out that individual lane. I mean, that seemed to be a huge takeaway for me. But do people just not pick a lane? And is it just still an issue that is keeping people from more chances on stage?
1: Yeah, good question. So there's two questions in there. The first one is on picking a lane. And here's the problem. The world of high paid speeches, uh, speaking buyers want experts. They don't want generalists. So if you speak, hey, dude, I speak on leadership and customer service and innovation and finance and HR and workplace practices and health and wellness and meditation. No, it doesn't work. You cannot be an expert in all things. What the world really wants is deep expertise. You, instead of being a mile wide and an inch deep, you got to be a mile deep and an inch wide. So, first step is you cannot be all things to all people because the world doesn't accept it. No bureau is going to embrace that. And you're going to find yourself doing fewer speeches at very low fees. If you really want to drive your speaking business, you got to pick something. Pick what you're absolutely passionate about and what you're best at and go super deep in that. So, let's just say it's customer service, just picking up a random example. Now, that's an, an area that buyers understand. They say, I want a customer service fee. So now within that lane, and that's a you know nothing wrong with that lane, by the way, there's other big categories such as leadership, as you point out, or innovation or, or generational workforce stuff or future of work. I mean, there's a few big lanes. Once you've selected a lane that people understand, then you have to find what makes you unique and different inside that lane. So if you're like, yeah, I speak about customer service and I just talk about the five principles of customer service, you know, that's sort of a yawn because so does everybody else. On the other hand, if you spent 30 years working at Disney and your whole speech is about making magic, the five principles that Walt Disney used for customer service, then it's sort of interesting because you've got your unique twist on it, or, you know, at least quasi unique twist anyway, on on the lens of customer service. So the first step is pick a broad category lane and stick with it, go deep, and the second one is find something that you are unique, where someone couldn't pull your name off and stick a different speaker's name on and the story and the, the deliverables still hold true.
0: Yeah, and so for me, I was speaking in a general communication sense and even uh, being reintroduced to Nick Morgan at your shop and, and reconnecting with him, the same kind of focus is like, what is that one thing? For me, it's this 313 method that I've got. And you know nobody else has that. That's what I seem to be being the most passionate about. And since going to your workshop, I've sort of put that front and center, and it's really been fascinating to see that concept of the lane and then, you know, the particular car that I'm driving in that lane and that, you know, nobody else seems to have the key to it. So that's definitely helped me out a lot. Are there any thought exercises that you help people through or any type of, you know, drilling down or process that you help them to discover? Because going from customer service in general or leadership in general, how do you get people to find that uniqueness?
1: Yeah, well, the thing I would first recommend you do is list all the things about yourself that are different and unique. And when I say unique, it doesn't have to be like you're the only person out of 7 billion on the planet, but just mean that you're not totally in common with everybody else. So my previous example about Disney, yes, there are other people that have worked at Disney, but not like every customer service speaker has worked at Disney. Anyway, make a list. So in my case, I'll give you a quick example. I'm from Detroit. That's something that's interesting. Hmm. I'm an innovation guy. Okay. That's not that interesting in and of itself, but that's my category, but I'm a jazz musician. Wow. That's pretty cool. Wait a minute. I've started built and sold five tech companies. That's kind of neat. Oh, I've started a venture capital fund and I've invested in a hundred startups. That's kind of different. And so sometimes your difference, your core difference is the intersection of a few different things. That's not unique individually. For example, other people are from Detroit. Other people are jazz musicians. Other people are innovation experts. But if you combine all those three, I'm the only guy that I know of that that meets all three of those. So I would encourage people to just list out all the things that are sort of unusual and different about them, and then see how could you assemble those in a way and tell a story around it that nobody else can.
0: Hmm, I like that. So it's it's more of the intersection and these individual parts that makes you unique than trying to find and search for you know that one particular moment because that one particular moment might just not be there, and that's what creates the difficulty in doing that.
1: Correct. And by the way, just to reiterate, the term unique doesn't mean you're unique with every human on the planet, but in your category. So there are other people from Detroit that speak, I'm sure, but not ones that speak on innovation necessarily. So again, look for within your category what makes you unique. The other thing I would tell people to do is think about it in the context of what's the transformation that you create for your audience and your host. In other words, a great keynote is about the audience, not you. You are simply a vessel to help elevate them, to help change their lives, to help change their business. So when you think about your uniqueness, think about how are you changing the audience? If they show up at 9 a.m. and, and you leave the stage at, at 10 with a standing ovation, how are those people different as a result? And try to frame your uniqueness in the context of the transformation that you create. It's good reverse engineer, Wayne, right there. So speaking of reverse engineering,
0: one of the things I was fascinated with at the Three Ring Circus was meeting people from the bureaus, and they were all pretty high up. And that was really my first exposure to the bureaus. I've been kind of a non-bureau speaker, didn't really understand it, didn't maybe really um, you know, care to understand it. But you really opened up my eyes that at the end of the day, it seems as though the way you're seen speaking, it's more of a risk management for the person that's hiring you. And I'm curious for you to maybe dive into that a little bit. And then this idea of bureau ready is something that I think is key because that's what I'm doing right now is getting bureau ready based on that conversation.
1: Yeah, I saw a statistic recently that 70% plus of speeches that are sold over $15,000 are sold through a bureau. Hmm. So as a speaker, you know, you have to make a choice. So There are people that don't like bureaus. I don't understand why. I think they're amazing, but you're going to limit your business if you choose to take that route. The way I look at it is that your bureaus are the greatest thing ever. Think about it like this. Every morning, they fire up their fishing boats. They use their own bait. They use their own tackle. They use their own expense and gas. And they go out and bring you back a beautiful, delicious fish. And they just ask for a little piece of it in return. If you look at it like that, you want as many fishing boats out there casting as many lines in the water as you possibly can. The greatest thing ever. Hmm. So if you want to be serious about your speaking business, my opinion Feel free to do what you want. My opinion is that you want to be friends with every bureau you can and make them win and profit so that you can as well. Anyway, so we always we actually have five of the biggest bureaus as official advisors to our um, our project, the Ring Circus. So Washington Speakers Bureau, Harry Walker Agency, Premier Speakers Group, uh, WWSG, which is Worldwide Speakers Group, and Speak Inc. are all official advisors we've also had um, representatives come to every boot camp. We always have four or five speaker bureaus uh, agents come. We've had people from Eagles and National Speakers Bureau and, and everywhere in between. And it's wonderful because we share how the bureau relationship works, how speakers can really connect with those bureaus to build their business, and how they can make it a win for everybody. And I'll just tell you something. When you pay a commission to a speaker bureau, you they're not taking anything from you. They're adding to your business. And if you the best way to think of it is if they're taking a little piece of it, you're just, it's like you paying them for the next yeah.
0: Gig. <laughs> I like that. So the amount that uh, you're giving them for the gas and for bait is basically for them to go fish for the next one.
1: Heck, yeah, absolutely.
0: So how do you know when your bureau ready? Uh, you, you really dug into that, but if you were going to give a high level, you know I like this idea that you really do have the one chance to make the first impression. So at what point are speakers ready to make that impression?
1: Well, it's a little bit of a tricky question, but you need, at a minimum, a few core things. You need to have professional shot photography. You need to have a website that's really good and clear. You need to have tightly written speech descriptions and a very well-written bio. By the way, not a resume, a bio for speaking. You need to have a high-quality video so they can see you in action. And you need to have a fee schedule that is uh, coherent and clear. Those are, and, and oh, last one is some testimonials. Those are the ante to play. So if you don't have those seven things, don't even call a bureau. On the other hand, as you talk about getting bureau ready, that's a wonderful thing that that emerging speakers can focus on is getting those seven things in place, in action, ready to launch. Because to be taken seriously by a bureau or even a serious meeting planner who's going to pay a high fee for your work, you need to have those seven things. That's just the way our business works. So real quickly, again, professional photography, video, testimonials, a high quality bio, a beautiful website, uh, speaking topics and a clear fee schedule one of the things
0: that stuck out and i've actually shared this with a few people about the speaker's reel in particular you put out a question you said all right everybody uh, i don't know if you asked us to close your eyes but in my mind i envisioned you're like close your eyes everyone now imagine you know what you want to be paid for a keynote could be whatever it is like find that number in your mind visualize it and like okay open your eyes and you're like that is the minimum amount you need to spend on your speaker's reel. <laughs> and you just, you heard this audible gasp, like, <gasps> because everybody wants these high speaking fees. But to make that connection, it's just even a baseline, if you're willing to invest as much as you want to make on one speech on your speaker's reel, like, that's real. Like, that makes sense if you think about it. Is that, is that kind of a standard that you came up with? Or is that just a thought experiment to get people to really understand the investment it takes to put together something for that type of uh, a level?
1: Yeah. So your speaker's reel is your single most important tool to sell speeches. And if you are great on stage and your reel is shot on someone's iPhone, it's all grainy, you're just never going to sell a speech the, the way you want. So the rule of thumb, which is not from me, actually, it's from one of my good friends, an amazing speaker, Hall of Fame speaker, Sally Hogshead, is that if you want to be a $20,000 speaker, you should spend $20,000 on your video. You want to be a $50,000 speaker? Go spend 50 on your video. And you know what? That's a lot of money. And you say, gosh, I don't know. But, you know, think about any other business. Again, if you're a professional and you were opening up a dental clinic, you have to buy equipment. You have to set up the dental office. And this is the same thing for you. This is the most important investment that you make in your speaking business. And uh, in the video, you have to be at least as good in the video as you are on stage if you really want people to take you seriously. And I don't mean to be blunt about it, but but again, I see too many people, they say, oh, I just want to be carted off to fame and fortune, but without doing the work. It reminds me of that old quote that everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die to get there. <laughs> uh, there's some, some sacrifice and investment that are needed if you want to be performing in the biggest stages at the highest levels. On the other hand, and now, now the upside of it, there's a wonderful case for return on investment. If you spend $20,000 on your speaker video, and you're currently a $10,000 speaker, and not only do you raise your feet at $20,000, but you do... 20 more speeches a year, absolutely massive return on investment on that that you, you spent for your video reel. So it's not a sure thing, but it's the closest thing to a sure thing. Invest in a great video. I like that. The closest
0: thing to a sure thing. <laughs>
1: So tell me a little bit more
0: about the process of raising your fees or even maybe some baseline for people to find out what their, their baseline fee should be. But I was impressed with that discussion and really got me thinking about increasing the fees and finding that as part of that sort of growth process.
1: Um, yes. So fee is a tricky thing. Here's a couple uh, suggestions for people. First of all, uh, if you go too low, you may not be taken seriously. So if I told you, hey, I've got a Ferrari to sell you, and it's only 10 grand, the first thing you'd say is, well, what's wrong with it? So people tend to put an equation uh, of fee and and quality. So if you go too low, your your meeting planners won't take you seriously, nor will uh, your bureau friends. But the best way to do do a fee is this. First of all, ask around, maybe some friends or others in the industry, kind of get a feel for what you think it might be, okay? It doesn't have to be exact. So let's say you think, gosh, maybe I could be a $15,000 speaker. The next step, once you have just a baseline idea, go on bureau sites and search for $15,000 speakers in your category. So if you speak on millennials, go to Washington Speakers Bureau or Kepler or Premier and search for millennial speakers and put a budget range of $15,000 and go check out your competition and be honest about it. Look at their website. Look at their bio. Look at their video. Look at their photography. Look at their speaking descriptions and say, how do I stack up? And if you think that you crush them, you probably get a good fee. If you think that they crush you, maybe you need to look at a different fee. And the simple tool that I would recommend is once you have a sense of a fee and look at others in your category at that fee, if you think that you are going to win objectively against those people 50% or more of the time, you're at a good fee range. So if you think you're going to, all of a sudden, I am going to be a $35,000 speaker, and you come and look at my site, and you look at others at $35,000, and we just are just not, not a judgment as a human being, but we're just more advanced or more professional or more, more experienced, and you say, gosh, I'd lose every time in a competitive shootout, then you're at the wrong fee range. So again, find others in whatever fee you're considering, carefully explore the, the competition, ask yourself honestly, and others, advisors, can you win 50% or more of the time at that fee range? If yes, you're at a great fee. If not, go lower. If you're going to win 100% of the time, go higher.
0: Gotcha. Well, great practical advice. And I love the simplicity of it and the insights. And it's done nothing but sort of give me more focus on what I'm doing. So if somebody wants to check out the Three Ring Circus or they want to join, what's the best route? Just point to the website?
1: Yeah. So if you want to check out the website, it's just the number three and then ring, R-I-N-G, circus.com. Again, we're just being a little playful and we didn't want it to be called the zillion dollar speaker or something cheesy. So it's three ring circus.com. Also feel free to reach out to me directly. Uh, my site is just my name, joshlinkner.com. And my email is simple, josh at joshlinkner.com.
0: And one thing I will attest to, and that you hold as one of your Competitive advantages is the freakish response time. Maybe we can end with that. Why is it so important to have a freakish response time? Because literally, you're a busy guy, but y- you do get back freakishly quick. And <laughs> how
1: important is that? It sounds so obvious, but it's so important. And I've talked to bureaus about this. Here's the thing let's say they have a client, let's say it's a big client, Coca Cola, they've got their big meeting coming up, and they ask the bureau, hey, give me some ideas for this. Or who's available? If the bureau knows that I respond in three seconds and someone else responds in three days, guess who they reach out to first? Right. And the thing is, it sounds so obvious. And like in most industries, being responsive is just the ante to play. But in our industry, for some reason, speakers or maybe it's their egos. I don't know what, but, oh, well, I'm going to only respond on Tuesdays to inquiries. And I'm going to run it through my five-part matrix. And I need to talk <laughs> to my team, all this nonsense. And guess what? You lose the fastest person to respond sometimes literally wins the game. So simple mantra for you, and uh, we use to, make Jimmy John's look slow.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, I love Jimmy John's and I'm going to be inspired every time I see them and I will channel my inner Jimmy to make sure that I get back quicker than not. So Josh, I appreciate the time. Super inspired by what you're doing. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to returning to the three ring speaker because there, there are people I met who come back to this thing regularly because the information is that valuable. So those who are curious about taking things seriously, not a step up, but probably like an escalator or elevator, check it out because what I appreciate Josh is that you are speaking about what you are doing and you're not just speaking about (laughs) hypothetical things that you're not doing yourself. So, uh, it's grounded in reality and I appreciate all the help that you are providing to people and even just the great connections of people that I met there. I'm continuing to be in touch with them. So gratitude, sir. And, uh, enjoy your day and i'm excited for everybody to learn more about you reach out to josh check it out join the circus and be freakishly faster than jimmy <laughs> thanks josh
1: ryan thank you thanks for doing this podcast for, for helping the industry that we both love and continue success to you and all the listeners today thanks again
0: all right buddy we'll talk to you later